We're going to come to a time in our service now where we'll look at a passage of Scripture and talk about what it means and why it matters to our lives and how it relates to the things that are happening with us right now. In order to do that, we're going to look at today something from the New Testament, from Mark's Gospel. So if you have a Bible with you, if you would turn to Mark chapter 14. If you're using a pew Bible, it's on page 721. We're going to begin at verse 66. And I promise you today we're not going to do a, a whole chapter or 50,000 verses. It's much smaller today. When you found that, would you stand with me together and we'll read from God's Word. Mark 14, beginning at verse 66. Here's what Mark writes. While Peter was below in the courtyard, of the servant, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by, and when she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You were also with that Nazarene Jesus, she said, but he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about, he said, and he went out into the entryway. When the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing around, this fellow is one of them. Again, he denied it. After a little while, those standing near said to Peter, surely you're one of them. For you're a Galilean. And he began to call down curses on himself, and he swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. And he broke down and wept. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let me pray for us here and ask God to bless our time now as we look to his word. Sovereign Lord, we come to you now and ask you to open our eyes to your word. We believe that you want to speak to us this morning through your word, because the same spirit that inspired these men to write it is alive and living today and living in many of us. So I ask that you would open ears to hear, open eyes to see. Give us a willingness to receive what you want to say and then give us not, a, not just a willingness to acknowledge it, but to act on it, to do something about it. God, you say that when you send out your word, it is powerful and effective. It accomplishes the purpose for which you send it. Oh God, accomplish that purpose in us this morning. And as I always ask now, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue to speak your truth? Amen. If you were really my friend, you would have been there for me. If you really loved me, you would have done what you'd promised to do. Whether you have said those words to someone before or you've heard them yourself, all of us to one degree or another know the pain of broken promises. And on one level we experience this Every day in our lives, whether that's through false advertising, you know, healthy menu options at McDonald's or, or the next political campaign that happens, you know, political candidates, they, they come and they, they bring all kinds of promises to us during their campaigns and, and, and they promise to do these things and if their promises are good enough and they're plausible enough, we vote for them in the hopes that they're going to carry out what they promise to do. I discovered this past week, there's actually a website called trudeometer.ca. Maybe it's Trudeau Metric, I don't know. 
TrudeauMeter.ca, it actually tracks all 219 promises that Justin Trudeau made during his campaign from the time that he took on his office until the present day. It says, okay, did he complete it? Has he even started it? People are watching. They want to know, will you keep your promises? And of course, as we look down south and we see the results of this uh, election, uh, which many of us are now aware of uh, in the United States, I think those who are in the, the hashtag Never Trump camp are probably hoping that Trudeau, Trudeau, uh, Trump won't keep uh, many of the promises that he said he wanted to do in his campaign. But whatever it is, whether it's a political candidate or that weed killer that you bought, which actually seems to be growing more weeds than it's killing, we all know what it's like. We've experienced the discomfort and the annoyance and the trouble of broken promises. But when it comes home, when it comes to your front door, when it's personal, it's with a friend, a spouse, family members, that makes broken promises much more devastating and the effects are much more long-term. Now, whether we've simply just misjudged our abilities to be able to carry something out, or we've just flat-out falsely promised to do something we knew we couldn't do, Broken promises within our relationships, they can fracture those relationships. They can shatter trust. And if you happen to be the one that broke the promise, it can bring about great amounts of shame and and feelings of defensiveness and and wanting to hide away. And it's in those contexts that we so often hear those words, if you really loved me, if you were really my friend, you would have done what you promised We've got just two weeks left now in this series that we've entitled True Family Portraits, where we're looking at some of the most notorious sinners, failures, and screw-ups in the Bible, who all happen to be very much a part of the family of God as well, in order to just help us just discard, do away with that kind of just, you know, polished up, photoshopped, whatever version that people tend to think of the family of God, and see what the Bible shows us the family of God really looks like. And this far through the series, just to remind us all of why we're doing this, I'm hoping that this is really broadening your view, your picture of of the type of people you should be engaging with the gospel. It's not this specific set of nice, cleaned-up people. We should be spreading our gospel net wide. And it's also meant to encourage us and, and motivate us when we see God's ability to redeem and use all kinds of messed up, broken people in His kingdom. People just like you and I. So far we looked at uh, Jacob and King David. Last Sunday we looked at the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar. This Sunday we're jumping, as you see, all the way into the New Testament, to Mark's Gospel, to look at one of Jesus' closest friends, Simon, who was later called Peter. And I hope this message this morning is going to be particularly encouraging to a lot of us. It's going to resonate with many of you as it did with me this week, because Peter's experience here is pretty much all of our experience. All of us, if you know Jesus as your Savior right now, you you know Peter's experience where you want to follow God. You you want to obey Him and, and do what His Word says and live life the way He's set out in His Word. We try so hard to do that, and yet we find so often we're not able to follow through on our promises to do it. We just can't consistently keep it up all the time, and we fail all the time. And the problem is, 
If you don't know, if you don't have a firm understanding of what kind of friend Jesus is to you, you can be overwhelmed with a great deal of of crippling, paralyzing shame if you break your promises that you've given to Jesus. And you can also even think that your relationship with God is in danger because you've broken them. So this morning, in order to continue to help us give a true family picture of what God's family really looks like, but also to help us see the redeeming grace of Jesus who loves to, to hold on to and continue to use his messed up failing kids, I want to look at our passage this morning in just two ways. We're going to talk about promise breakers and the promise keeper. That's it. The promise breakers and the promise keeper. So if you closed your Bibles, would you open them back up to Mark 14 and follow along with me as we go through this? We'll dig in together. So let's take a, let's take a look here, first of all, at promise breakers. Promise breakers. Now, in order for us to see how it was that Peter failed to follow through on his promises in our passage, we need to know what those promises actually were. So we're going to jump back, if you're using the Pew Bible, just back one page actually to verses 27 to 31 of the passage. We'll see what these promises Peter makes actually are. Look at verse 27. You will all fall away, Jesus told them, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter declared, we could say Peter promised, even if all fall away, I will not. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered. I promise you, Jesus answered, today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. Verse 31, but Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. Peter's making a lot of promises here, and in order to get the full impact of of what's going on here and, and, and how this is playing out, we need to know even what sort of man Peter is. And the easiest way to describe Peter is that Peter is a, is a scrapper. He is a De Niro and Raging Bull. He's just a hair trigger, huge, overflowing emotions. He's the kind of guy who's going to want to go at a level 11 on a 1 to 10 scale all the time. And he's not somebody you would ever want to put into the camp of conflict avoidant. That is not Peter. He, he if anything, seeks it out, it seems to anyway. So knowing that, it makes it a little bit easier to understand what's going on here and and how Jesus can say to his disciples in verse 27 there, you will all fall away and Peter can still say to the incarnate Son of God, no, 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 actually that's not true. That's not going to happen. I mean, yeah, sure. Look at at verse 29. He says, even if all fall away, I won't. So he's kind of like, okay, yeah, maybe you're right about those other guys. Sure you are, but not me. Jesus, you, you you, you got it wrong, Jesus. Even when Jesus tries to gently uh, respond to his overzealous friend, in verse 30 there, he says, Peter, I'm not playing with you. I'm not trying to give you a hard time. You will actually tonight, before this day is over, you're going to deny me three times. But still, he won't drop it. Still, he won't back down. In verse 31, he says, no, no, no. Even if all fall away, even if I have to die with you, I won't disown you. If, you. if you were just looking at this from the outside, you didn't know who these people were. This kind of feels a little bit like a high-stakes World Series of poker, poker match. Really, you know, so Jesus comes in and he puts down his, you will all fall away. And Peter's like, okay, 
Okay, I'll see you, you'll all fall away, and I'll raise you. Uh, 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 even if I'll fall away, I won't. And then Jesus is like, okay, well, I'm going to raise, I'm going to see your, uh, I won't fall away, even if I'll do, and I'm going to put in a, uh, this very night, you will fall away, you'll disown me. Peter says, oh, you must have a pretty good hand, but Jesus, and he pushes in all his chips on, even if I have to die with you, I won't fall away. And if you look at the end of verse 31, they, all the other disciples are pushing in their chips on the same stupid bed. It's like, it's contagious in the room. Everyone's like, yeah, yeah, me too, Jesus. I would, even if I have to die, they're, they're all making the same crazy promises to Jesus. Now, where this whole conversation is taking place is during the Last Supper. This is the Passover meal that Jesus is eating with his disciples right before he goes to the cross. Right after this, they will head out to the Mount of Olives. He will be arrested and taken to a, a fake illegal trial at the high priest's house. He'll be beaten and crucified. And by this time tomorrow, he will be dead and in a tomb. And Jesus knows this already. And now when we come to our passage in verse 66 here, Aside from that you know, one time in the garden where he falls asleep when Jesus asked them all to stay awake, there, there was that one little slip-up. But you know what? Peter's actually doing really well. He's keeping his promise. All the other disciples have taken off when Jesus was arrested. And aside from one, one other disciple, most scholars believe it was John, who helps him to get into the high priest's courtyard. He's got backstage passes. I don't know what. He gets them into the high priest's courtyard where Jesus is being tried. Aside from that guy, Peter is the only disciple left who's still standing. So he's, he's right in a sense. The others have all fallen away, but he's sticking by Jesus. And then in verse 66 there, Mark tells us there, Peter was below in his courtyard. He's kind of giving us a mental picture of what was going on to help us visually see what was happening. So there's this gated courtyard below and then rooms above and a house overlooking the courtyard. And up in one of these rooms is where Jesus' legal trial is taking place with the religious leaders. And as Peter is warming himself by this charcoal fire, one of the servant girls of the high priest sees Peter and begins to look at him more closely and eventually concludes he must be there with Jesus as well. And I don't know how it was she put it together initially. I mean, it's almost like Peter is sitting down there in the getaway car or something waiting for Jesus to bust out. I don't know. But she sees him and she starts to put the two things together and she's like, I think you're here with him. I think you are. And, and we know because we read it or maybe you've heard it we know the sad course of events that happens now. Peter is trying to evade her all around the courtyard, and she follows him around, each time crying out to him, you, you're one of him, you're with him. And now Peter, who's been doing so well up until this point, now does exactly what Jesus told him he would do. The very thing that he promised he wouldn't do, and he denies Jesus Three times. Look at verse 71 here. Even calling down curses on himself, swearing, I don't know this man you're talking about. He won't even say his name. I don't know this man you're talking about. We don't know what to do with this when we read this. It, it doesn't make sense to us. What's going on with this guy who was so passionately zealous to follow Jesus, now totally selling out his friend? It's hard to put that together in our minds. A couple of weeks ago, we were uh, a few of us were at uh, these lectures uh, talking about uh, Martin Luther and his 
life. And one of the things that uh, the professor brought up as he was talking about this is that some of Luther's greatest failings, he said, were actually due in part to his greatest strengths. There was a correlation between them. And I think that's exactly what we see going on here. As with all the same passion and enthusiasm that Peter follows Jesus, he also passionately and enthusiastically fails him. I've heard some people uh, uh, preach this text before and talk about when Peter calls down curses on himself and, and swears he doesn't know Jesus, he's literally swearing a blue streak like a sailor, just trying to show them, listen, I don't know him. That, that could be the case. I, I, I like instead what one commentator says, that when Mark is writing his gospel, he's trying to contrast two events, actually. Right above our passage in Jesus' trial, we see Jesus is giving his testimony before the Sanhedrin. And now he's contrasting that with Peter as he gives his testimony before these accusers, really just to demonstrate the superior promise-keeping power of Jesus, even above his most devout followers. Jesus, when he's put under oath in his trial, he actually purposely, knowingly puts himself in harm's way when he could have actually probably escaped the trial. He does it purposely in order to be faithful to his promise. Peter puts himself under oath here, but instead of being faithful, he breaks his promise and he denies his friend three times. And we see verse 72 here with an amazing prescience even as the third denial is coming out of his mouth the rooster crows and peter's confidence his misplaced confidence and his ability to keep his promise is painfully exposed and he is devastated and he breaks down and weeps so how could this happen what what's going on here how could Peter, he's one of Jesus' own disciples. He's the, the man on whom Jesus said, I will build my church. He's one of Jesus' closest friends, one of his boys. How could he sell out his friend like this? How could he be such a terrible friend and break his promises to Jesus this way? People have made a lot of guesses as to what Peter's motivation is, what his rationale was. It's important to note, actually, the Bible makes no statement at all about what his motives were. I mean, I don't think any of us would go so far as to say that Peter was, was just lying when he promised to Jesus, and he made these promises that he would never fall away. I think we'd all say and agree, you know, he, he was sincere. He made his promises not to fall away in earnest. And yet I think what's going on here is that in the life of Peter... It's something that all of us struggle with today in our own lives is that Peter simply believes he knows better than God. He just knows better. Thank you very much for that opinion, Jesus, but I'm going to take my own path. Thank you very much. That's, that's, that's all that's going on. That's, that's how this happens. I mean, Jesus plainly warns Peter of the coming danger, but rather than listening to Jesus or even setting up any kind of safeguards, like just in case he might be right, he does nothing. He just foolishly sprints off into the pitch black woods without even so much as a pen light to guide him, confident that he, he knows the path better than Jesus and he's not going to trip and fall. And don't we all do this exact same thing when we come to God's Word? We do this every day. Maybe, maybe, you hear 
people say or you read in God's word that we've, our relationship with God is broken. Our human efforts, as good as we try to be on our own, are not sufficient to repair that relationship with God. And yet we, we just want to say, okay, uh, I, I, I hear that, but you know what? I, I think I can find another way there. I think I know a better way. I, that, that way just seems too easy. It doesn't make sense. I want to do it my own way. And we foolishly run down a path that leads to nowhere, sometimes sprinting even harder to try to prove God wrong. No, no, no. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to live a good life, and I'll trust that at the end of time, God's going to see that I tried hard, and He'll let me into heaven. We think we know better. Or maybe, like we were talking about this past week in our home groups, maybe God promises us to expect sin's attacks. It's coming. You need to be prepared for this. You need to put on the full armor of God daily. And you need to try to fight sin not in your own strength, but in His superior strength. And yet, rather than making use of those resources, rather than relying on His superior strength, we walk out onto the battlefield in a house coat and slippers and wonder why we're getting shot at, why, why are our limbs getting blown off as we step on landmines and tripwires. We thought we knew better. We thought our own path was going to work out and... and, and we, yeah, thanks, Jesus. I, I got this one. Paul says this, Romans chapter 3, Let God be true and every man be a liar. Proverbs 30, Solomon writes, Every word of God is flawless. He's a shield to those who take refuge in Him. Do not add to His words or He will rebuke you and prove you a liar. And so really what we're seeing here in our passage is just, first of all, it's a call to gospel humility. It's a call to humility and a surrendering of even the strongest of wills and saying that wherever God's word speaks, he knows better than I do. Just to admit that to ourselves, to be open to the possibility that maybe, just just maybe the God of the universe, the God who made you, the God who fills all in all, who knows even the number of hairs on your head, that maybe he might know a couple of things more than you do. It's a call to commit ourselves again this morning to to unquestioned obedience where God has clearly spoken and an unwavering trust when we don't understand what he's doing. And I wonder if we could even just take one minute right now in the quietness of your own heart. Would you ask the Spirit of God to reveal to you right now in this moment, where have I heard what you've said and I've said, no, I know better. I'm going to try it my own way. And then repent of that and recommit yourself right now this morning to trusting and following what it is that he's shown you to do. Can we do that right now? Let's just take a moment. That's 
promise breakers, I hope, if I wasn't clear enough, I hope we recognize that's, that's all of us. We are all the promise breakers, but I want to finish by looking at the promise keeper. The promise keeper, because just like Mark was contrasting Jesus' faithfulness under oath with Peter's unfaithfulness, I want to finish here this morning in our true family portrait here by contrasting our inability to keep our promises with Jesus' supreme ability, with our faltering friendship with Jesus and his perfect friendship with us. Remember how in that kind of high-stakes poker match between Peter and Jesus that Jesus made some promises of his own, didn't he? He promised uh, all the disciples would fall away. He promised Peter in particular, you're going to disown me three times tonight. In Luke's account of uh, this very same event, Jesus actually makes an additional promise. We'll have it up on the screen. Luke twenty-two thirty-one. Jesus says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. That you is plural. He's asked to sift you all as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. So here Jesus makes another promise to Peter that's, a, that's very difficult to hear. He tells Simon, Satan is asked to sift them all as wheat. And I don't know exactly what that is, but if Satan's doing, it's probably really bad. He, he's probably something to do with, with trying to separate uh, and sift away his, his faith in Jesus from himself, much the way you sift away the chaff from the wheat. But Jesus promise to Peter here is that he's going to pray to him, pray for him so that as bad as it will go for him, his faith will not fail. What, what a comfort to hear from Jesus. It's going to be hard, but I'm praying for you. And what a comfort for us today to read in places like Hebrews 7.25 that Jesus, who is alive today in heaven, is doing the same thing for you right now. It says that he lives always to intercede for you. Jesus is coming before the Father in prayer for you right now. Jesus also promises Peter, although he will falter, although he will face plant, that he will get up again and he will encourage his brothers then to do the same. We know that's a promise because Jesus says, when you turn back, not if. We've already seen in our passage that Jesus' promises do in fact come true, particularly uh, uh, to the disciples and to Peter. All those things happen. But where we see Jesus keeping this last promise is actually not until the end of John's gospel. We don't actually hear from Peter after his denial. He just goes off the scene. The end of John's gospel in John 21. I wonder if you turn there with me. If you're using a pew Bible, it's on page 769. John 21, beginning at verse 15. to catch you up here. Jesus has been raised from the dead now. He's already appeared to the disciples twice, but here in what's almost like identical bookends to Peter's life, Jesus comes to him again and brings about a miraculous catch of fish. Peter and some of the disciples are out fishing. Jesus comes to them on the beach, says, try the other side, brings another catch of fish, which if you know Peter's life, that's just how Jesus' interaction with Peter began. And when the disciples, they all realize it's Jesus, someone says, it's the Lord. And Peter, who it says, he's out there in just his undergarment. I don't know what this looked like, you know, in his underwear with a beer and a cigarette or something. But he, he puts on his coat, he jumps into the water, he won't even wait to row in. He's so desperate to see Jesus again. And they all clamber into the shore with this big catch of fish. And Jesus is there standing by a fire cooking breakfast. 
And I don't want to make too much of this, uh, and yet I think it's incredibly significant. Very interesting, at least. Jesus has prepared a fire of charcoal. We don't have it in the NIV translation, but literally he's prepared a fire of charcoal to cook on, which if you remember, it was the charcoal fire that Peter had warmed himself by in the high priest's court when he denied Jesus. Also, he's cooking a meal of fish and bread, which was the very meal that Jesus had multiplied, feeding 5,000 men and their families in order to show his deity, his, his power over creation. I think uh, these signs were meant for all the disciples, but I wonder if they weren't for Peter in particular. A, a, a veritable uh, buffet of remembrance, a sensory buffet of smells and tastes in order to remind Peter of what had happened. And then uh, everything calms down and they're sitting around eating breakfast and now is where we read this in verse 15. Look with me there. When they'd finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, he said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? And he answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus had asked him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Now Peter's faith, Peter's faith had been just devastated, decimated by what he had done that night when he betrayed his friend. And I don't know if you've ever had a moment like that in your own life where you've just fallen in a way that you never imagined you could in your own life. The shame and the regret is just overwhelming and crushing to you. But if you have, you can understand why even after seeing Jesus raised from the dead, Peter is still feeling disillusioned. He's still bound with heavy chains of, of shame. And, and he wants so badly to return to his friend. He, he wants to return to that relationship, but he's so ashamed he can't even bear to ask. Have you been there before? I have. And what's so beautiful to see here is that instead of waiting for him to muster up the courage, Jesus instead initiates the grace-offering, relationship-restoring conversation with him. The offended reaches out to the offender. There's no question, this, this conversation is painfully awkward. It is. And yet, isn't it always awkward whenever we honestly deal with failure? But Jesus is willing to have this kind of conversation because Peter truly is his friend, and true friendship can bear this kind of level of honesty. So now, staring across that charcoal fire, Jesus now asks his friend, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? There's some debate about what Jesus means by these. Is he referring to uh, the fish? Peter's gone back to fishing fish instead of fishing men. Uh, I think I agree with most commentators that say that these people that Jesus is referring to is the other disciples, referring to, to Peter's brash promise that even if all the others fell away, he wouldn't, that somehow his promise-keeping ability was above all of theirs. And so now Jesus asks Peter on the other side of that charcoal fire of denial, do you truly love me more than all these other guys? Really? Is your love for me and your ability to be faithful to me really so much better than anyone else's? 
Jesus isn't being cheeky here. He's, he's seeking to restore and also to train and grow his friend in order to be able to honestly assess his, his inadequacies and his limitations. And he asks his friend this piercing question, not once, but three times. Of course, meaning to coincide with each of his three denials. And you see in the second half of verse 17 here, we read that Peter was hurt when Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? Don't, don't misunderstand that hurt. Don't, don't hear it in our touchy-feely 21st century. What, why is Jesus giving him such a hard time? He, he's had a hard time. It's not hurt like that. Jesus is not taking shots at Peter. He's not forcing him to go through some sort of forced repentance, forced contrition. Jesus is hurting his friend in order to heal him. It's the healing hurt we read about in places like Proverbs 27 that says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend. David writes in Psalm 141, Let a righteous man strike me, it is a blessing. Let him rebuke me, it is oil on my head. Clearly referring to Nathan when he came to him and rebuked him. And the wounds that Jesus inflicts here to his friend are no more than the hurt that a surgeon must inflict before he can heal. But what's amazing is that included in each of Peter's confessing of his failure, of his inability to keep his promise, there's also a place now where Jesus restores him back to that relationship. He says, I'm not done with you, Peter. Peter, your failures don't define you. I define you. Feed my lambs. Restores him back to the role of shepherd. Shepherd of his own sheep. And whether you're someone that's failed greatly in your own life, or you will someday, I pray that you'll remember this today, because there's great hope for us here in what we read about in the life of Peter. Uh, a disciple of Jesus, a family member of Jesus, no doubt, and yet also a failing disciple, a failing family member just like all of us. And along with Jesus' restoration of Peter here, we can be encouraged by this. We can be encouraged by promises all throughout Scripture that say this same type of thing about the way Jesus restores promise breakers. Places like Psalm 103, 14. It's, this shows us how God can have compassion, how He can reach out and forgive promise breakers by saying this, for He knows our frame. He remembers that we're dust. He knows our weakness. He's not surprised by it. Jesus knew the weakness and frailty of Peter, even when Peter didn't know his own weakness. And he knows the same thing about you and about me. And just as Jesus promised to pray for his friend and then restored him even after his failure, God makes those same promises to us. Places like Timothy where he says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. For he cannot deny himself. A verse you probably maybe memorized in your Sunday school days, Philippians 1.6, being confident of this, he who began a good work in you will carry it out into completion until the day of Christ Jesus. He's not going to drop you. But you see, the only way Peter could receive this restoration from his friend was by being shown the true life portrait and then accepting the reality. As long as he tried to present this false bravado, this strength that he wanted everyone to see, he couldn't receive the restoration that Jesus wanted to give him. It was freely available to him, but he couldn't receive it until he was humble enough to acknowledge his inability to keep his promises. And it'd be no different for us. It's just as uh, Dave Kraft said, he's author of a book called Leaders at Last, he said, 
Acting like you don't need help when you need help is not a sign of strength. It's weakness. Would you be willing this morning to humble yourself enough to admit that in your own strength and by your own means, you will never live up to the life God wants you to live as badly and as passionately as you want to follow Him? You need Him. We need His support and we need His restoration all the time because we fail all the time. And the good news is that Jesus knows we need that. He knows we can't do it on our own, which is why He sent Jesus. You know, whether you grew up in church or not, there's a good chance you're familiar with Jesus' parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15. If you are, you'll remember there that both of that man's sons thought they knew better than their dad. Both subsequently face-planted in different ways and also were estranged from their father in different ways. And yet along with what we just looked at in John 21 of Jesus' restoration of his friend, there are few clearer presentations in the Bible of the way God welcomes failures and promise breakers when the younger son returns to his father in shame and regret, expecting judgment, but instead receiving a banquet. It can be a deep war and struggle within us to admit our failures, to admit our inability, to admit our, our, our breaking of our promises. And the cloud of shame can be overwhelming, can block out what's true, and it can seek to hold you captive in that failure. And yet, God's word to us is plain. Places like 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, that word confess actually means acknowledge. If we acknowledge our sins, if we acknowledge our inability to keep our promises. What does he say? He is faithful and just. He will forgive us of all our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. It doesn't mean that God ignores our failures. He doesn't skirt past them. He goes right through them. Just And yet, he doesn't allow those failures to define us, nor to keep us from usefulness in his kingdom or acceptance with God the Father. And you can know that today or whenever it is that you have those failures because God sent Jesus to be the one true promise keeper who would absorb all of our failed promises in his death on the cross. And now he welcomes failures and promise breakers of all kinds into his family because our status and our relationship with God now depends on Jesus' performance and not ours. Depends on his promise-keeping ability, not our own. In whatever ways you failed today or you will someday break promises, I pray that you'd remember this. Remember the gospel hope that will pierce through the clouds of shame and will guide you home where you too will find not judgment, but a banquet. Not condemnation, but a father running to embrace you, to restore you back to relationship with him. Let's pray. I'll ask those of you who are helping me to serve communion if you'd come forward as well. Father, we are in need of your restoration. We are in need of your help always. Would you forgive us for all the times when we foolishly think we know better? 
Remind us of the truth that we need you. As the old hymn says, every hour we need you. So God, I ask that you would continue to be faithful to us. Continue to remind us of the gospel hope that when we have failed, we have a God who's praying for us in heaven, ready to restore us and welcome us back. Would you help us when you restore us to then strengthen our brothers and sisters around us with that same reminder of hope? We ask this for Christ's sake. Amen.